0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton podcast. Now, As I mentioned, the the, the title of this message is Runaway. And I gave it that title because Paul in verse 14 opens this section by saying, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, as I've said in the past, uh, this this word flee that's used here in the original language is, is a word that speaks of a runaway slave. It's, it's the idea that, that you're constantly on the run, for, you're, you're constantly looking over your shoulder, you're constantly watching out for that slave master who wants to enslave you once again. But now in this case, Paul says, flee from idolatry. Now he's not saying that you need to run away from, from like a stone idol or, 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 a, or, or a wooden you know, figurine or some kind of a stone statue, but rather he's talking about the lifestyle that comes with idol worship. Now, what was the lifestyle that came with idol worship? It's a good question. Uh, That that lifestyle would have included uh, drinking to the point of drunkenness at these these pagan temples. It included smoking marijuana at these pagan temples. And it included sleeping with temple prostitutes. That was the lifestyle in question here. And so in effect, it's saying that, that now that you're a Christian, now that you're a follower of Christ, you're always on the run from the thing that wants to enslave you. And this morning, we're going to see that there are two reasons to run away. Number one, you run for your own benefit. And number two, you run for the benefit of others. You run for your own sake and you run for their sake. So now as we pick it back up in verse 14, verses 14 through 22, first of all, Paul reminds us that we are running away for our own benefit, for your own benefit. He says again in verse 14, "'Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry.'" I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what, what what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a, a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now let's pause here. I want you to notice this word participation that Paul keeps using. I think he, he used it now three different times. You know, he says, uh, "Is not the, the, the cup that we bless. Is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? Or, or the bread that we break, is that not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, some of your translations that you're reading this morning, they, they don't use the word participation. But if you're reading like from the New King James Version, yours would say communion instead. And there's a reason for that, because the Greek word koinonia that's used here is a word that can be translated participation, it could be translated communion, it can also be translated fellowship. You know, when we think of fellowship, we think of we think of friendship, we think of relationship. But listen, fellowship is is is, is, is much deeper than just a church potluck or an ice cream social. Really, this is a word that, that speaks of oneness. It speaks of unity. In fact, when we look at the word communion, perhaps a better way to render it would be to break it into two words, common union. And so it speaks of our, of our union, speaks of the unity that we have, the oneness that we have. Now here's why communion itself speaks of oneness. It was believed in that day that when you broke bread with someone, you were becoming one with them. I've shared this in the past, but the idea is this. If I had a loaf of bread and I, and I, and I break off of a piece of it for myself, and then I hand you the loaf, it's believed that a part of me now is attached to that loaf. So now when you take a piece of that bread, you not only get a piece of bread, but you also get a piece of me as well, a part of me as well. So it was literally believed by the ancients that when you broke bread together, you became one with each other. That's why Paul says in verse 17, he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Because they ate the same loaf, they became one with each other. So what it's saying is this. It's saying that when, when you walk into churches all over the world, you walk into any church, what you're going to see are, are, are different people from all walks of life, all doing life together. I mean, you walk in, you're going to see, you know, tatted up 20-somethings and 30-somethings. You'll see s- silver-haired grannies, maybe even some blue-haired grannies. You know, you're, you're going to see, you know, blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians. You're going to see upper class and middle class and lower class, people like me with absolutely no class all together in the same place as, as one, unified as one body. In fact, when you think about it, walking into a church on a Sunday morning is a lot like walking into a Walmart right around midnight. Anybody here ever walk into Walmart like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night? You want to talk about the freaks come out at night. I mean, just freaky people. Well, that's what the church is like. You, you, you have all these freaky people, but we're like Jesus freaky people. Because of what he's done for us, we are one with each other. Now, what's interesting is that when, 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 you know, even though the Bible says we are one with each other, we have unity with each other, that doesn't mean we always get along with each other. Am I right? Okay, there's no amens here, so nobody, nobody's guilty. You know, but you've heard me say before that, that wherever the body is, there's going to be body odor. Sometimes we're just going to rub each other the wrong way. And so this word that Paul's using, whether it's rendered communion or rather participation or rendered as fellowship, but this Greek word koinonia, not only is this word describing the, the oneness that we have with each other, but ultimately it's describing the oneness that we have with God, the oneness that we have with the Lord. Think about this. Uh, In the gospel of Luke, on the night of the Passover, uh, we we read that when Jesus took the bread, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples, and then after he gave the bread to his disciples, he said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But again, he, he took that bread, he broke it. And then he gave it to them. And again, they believed that when you gave it to, to them, part of you was still on it. So this speaks of the oneness that we have with the Lord. Now, not only that, but uh, it, there's, there's also an interesting thing that, that whenever two enemies made a peace treaty with each other, they always did it by breaking bread. Why? Well, because now you're no longer enemies. You might have been enemies, but now that you've broken bread, the two of you have become one with each other. And so in a sense, every time we take communion, communion is reminding us of the oneness we have with each other. It's also reminding us of the, of the oneness we have with him, but then it's also reminding us that because of his sacrifice on the cross, we now have peace with God. It says his, his peace treaty with us. Even as it says in Colossians 1.21, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your own mind uh, by by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. And so now Paul is taking this picture of oneness. Not only the oneness we have as, as, as the church, but the oneness we have with God. He now takes this picture of oneness and now he springboards off of that in verse 19. And he says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. There's that word again, participant or communion, koinonia, fellowship, oneness. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so in effect, Paul's saying this, he's saying, you know what? Just as we as Christians understand and believe that that the communion elements, you know, that the cup and, and the bread remind us of the oneness that we have with the Lord. Well, in the same way, listen, Pagans believed that, that, the, that the meat they were eating that was sacrificed to an idol also made them one with the god or goddess that they worshipped. I've explained this in the past, but, but the pagans believed that when they took an animal to their pagan temple and sacrificed it, that the, the god or goddess that they worshipped, the spirit of that god, would, would, would fill the animal. It now dwelled inside the animal. So that later when you, when you ate that animal, when you ate that sacrifice, you also now were consuming that god. That god was in you. However, they also superstitiously believed that demons lurked around every corner and, and, and that, if, that if, you, if you waited too long, if you sat too long and, and, and waited before you ate that meat, well, then the God you worship might have got impatient, got tired of waiting for you, left the meat, and now the demon lurking nearby jumps in and fills that meat, and now when you eat the meat, you become demon-possessed. You ate that deviled ham. And, 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 and so they, they had this kind of superstitious belief. Now, that's why back in chapter 8, Paul was talking, uh, you know, he was talking about Christian liberties, these Christian freedoms. In other words, he was saying, you know what, there are some Christians who, who are spiritually mature enough in their faith that, yeah, you know what, they might be able to, to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol and their conscience is clean. Why? Well, because they understand all that stuff was just silly superstition. They understand that, that there's no demon in that meat, there's no God in that meat, it's just meat. And so they can eat it with a clean conscience. But then again, in chapter 8, Paul mentioned that there are also brothers in Christ who are weaker in their faith. Maybe they're new Christians. Maybe, maybe they've come from an you know, from a from a from a metaholic background. You know, or maybe they have this, this idea that that, you know, they, they they really believe that that, you know, if they eat this meat, they're 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 gonna be demon possessed. And so Paul's saying, hey, listen, for their sake, for their benefit, just don't have the meat. It just don't don't bother with it. Don't trip them up. Don't stumble them. It's not that big of a deal. Now that's what Paul was dealing with back in chapter eight. But here in chapter ten, Paul's confronting something different. What Paul's confronting here is is, is basically saying, you know what? the last place that, that any recovering pagan, the last place that any Corinthian who, who's now a Christian, who now has Jesus in their life, the last place that anyone who is saved from a lifestyle of, a, of idolatry, the last place they should ever find themselves was back in the pagan temple. You see, evidently what was happening is you had some that were, that were going to church on Sunday and they're having communion. They're being reminded of the oneness they have in the Lord. But then they were also going to the pagan temple as well and now they're eating the meat sacrifice of these gods and they're, and they're participating in all the things that are happening there. And, and, and so Paul's saying, hey, listen, you can't do both. Now that you're a Christian, now that you're a follower of Christ, you don't belong in the pagan temple. So stop going back to the house of idols and idolatry and instead flee from idolatry. And so we flee from idolatry for our own benefit. We just don't belong there. It's it's, it's not going to do us any favors. But now, as as we pick it up in verse 23 through 26, now Paul points out that we also run away, we also flee for their benefit, for someone else's benefit. Verse 23, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let's pause here. Now, it's interesting. Some of your English translations, instead of saying all things are, are, are lawful, but not all things are helpful, yours would use the word profitable. The Greek word here, sumphero, it means profitable, it means advantageous, it means beneficial, but perhaps the best way to translate it is, is for the common good. For the common good. In other words, you're doing something that's helpful to someone else other than you. You're doing something for someone else's benefit, not for your own benefit. It's not for your good, it's for the common good. So whatever we're about to read in this next section, Paul's saying that that it's not for your benefit, it's for someone else's benefit. It's for the common good. And so on that note, he says in verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever, whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions on grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, I mentioned this in the past, but by way of review, remember, back in in, in those ancient days, there were basically two different places that you can go and buy meat. Now, the first place to go and buy meat would be the local meat market. Uh, They were called the Shambles. So you'd go to this place called the Shambles, the meat market, and and you'd buy meat there, but it was always sold at a premium. It was always, you know, ultra expensive. In fact, uh, I I looked it up and it's pronounced from the Greek, King supers," And so it's just this, you know, crazy expensive place to buy meat. Now, the, the other place that you can go and buy meat uh, would, would have actually been the pagan temple itself. Now, what would happen is, is after these pagan worship services, they would often convert the temple into a restaurant of sorts and basically serve barbecue after their services. So instead of going to Dickie's barbecue or Brother's barbecue, you'd stick around and just have Zeus's barbecue after service. Now, by the way, there was a, 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 a separate portion from the, from the sacrifice of those temples that then they would take and then sell at the local meat market at a, at a, at a discount. So you had a choice. You could either, you could either you know, go to the temple and get it, or you could go to the meat market and get the discounted meat from the, from the sacrifice that, that was at the temple. So basically what's happening here is, is there were two different groups of Christians living in the city of Corinth. On the one hand, uh, there, there were these Christians who would go to the meat market, and they, and they would buy this, this meat that, that was sold at a discount because it was sacrificed at the temple. You know, but they, they just bought it, they brought it home, they cooked it up, no big deal. But then there was another group of Christians who evidently were, were, were actually going to the pagan temple and not only eating the meat that was sacrificed there, but basically participating in the worship services participating in all the different, different things that were happening there. And, and so it's, it's, it's that group that Paul's confronting. Paul, Paul's dealing with that second group, this, this, this group of, of so-called Christians who, who saw themselves as, as being, you know, super mature. They, they, they were spiritually mature enough to be able to, to handle being in an environment like that. You know, I'm mature enough. I can handle it. Nothing's going to happen to me. You know, I, 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 I'm mature enough in my faith to be able to be in a place like this. This group of Christians who, who felt like you know, they had evolved to a point that, that you know, they had the maturity. And so basically, Paul's saying, this, I mean, listen, you know, just because you may have the right to, to go to the meat market and buy this meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, go home and cook it up, and there's no problem because, because you're spiritually mature enough to understand that, that there's, there's no God in that meat, there's no devil in that meat, it's just meat, that does not necessarily mean that, 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 that it's good for you to go to the pagan temple and participate in the whole nonsense there, the whole worship service there, and, and, and eat with those people. You know, in the same way, you know, nowadays, you know, uh, some, some of us may, may have the freedom, some of you may have the freedom to ha- have an occasional glass of wine every now and then with the meal. That, however, that does not mean that you have the freedom to go to the Grizzly Rose and get your buzz on, if you know what I mean. There's two completely different things. Because, you know, on the one hand, you might trip up a weaker brother in Christ, that weaker Christian maybe who, who, who got saved out of an alcoholic background. And, 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 and maybe your example causes them to stumble back into their lifestyle of alcoholism. Now, that, by the way, was what Paul was dealing with back in chapter 8. But here in chapter 10, Paul's dealing with something else. In chapter 10, Paul's not confronting the, the Christian who, who, who is tripping up the weaker brother, Rather, here in chapter 10, he's confronting the Christian who's tripping up the unbeliever, the non-Christian. You know, maybe, maybe there's a, a person in your life who's, who's, who's not a Christian. Yet, y- You know, maybe they're seeking Jesus. They're, they're, they're looking for the truth. They're, they're looking for answers in life. They're, they're looking for, for hope. They're looking for purpose. And they're like this close to, to receiving Jesus. But then all of a sudden, one day, they, they see this so-called Christian at the same bar that they're at. And they think to themselves, wow, I guess they're just as empty as I am. I mean, why would I need their Jesus if they're just as empty as as I am? Why do I need what they have? And so we trip them up from ever coming to Jesus in the first place. That's what Paul's confronting. And so, yeah, we, we run away, we flee sin and temptation for our own benefit. But you know what? We also flee for their benefit, to benefit them. Now, on that note, we pick it up in verse 27. And now Paul's reminding us that, you know what? We are supposed to influence them. Verse 27, Paul says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you, without raising questions as to ground of conscience... But if someone says to you, this has been offered as a sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should, should my liberty be, de- be determined by someone else's conscience? If, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." <clears throat> So now the the question at hand here is is, you know, what what if an unbeliever invites you somewhere? You see, there's two things happening here in this passage. Number one, maybe maybe you're a Christian, you're living in the ancient city of Corinth, and maybe a non-Christian, an unbeliever, invites you over to their house for a barbecue. Well, in that context, Paul's saying, you know what, go. You know, go there and, and, and you know, and by the way, when you're there, be a good guest. You know, don't, don't, don't get all uppity and, and, and don't insult them with, with, with your sensitivities about meat. You know, was, was this meat sacrificed to this or sacrificed to that? You know what? Just be a good guest and eat whatever is put before you. Don't make a big deal out of it. That was number one. But then maybe number two, what's happening is that maybe this unbeliever, this non-Christian, invites you not to their house for a barbecue, but maybe they invite you over to the pagan temple for, for a barbecue and drinks after service. And that's something completely different. And again, what Paul's saying is that, you know what? Just because it's okay for you to go to their house and, and, and go to their barbecue and, and maybe have a white claw with them or, or maybe a Bud Light, and, and listen to the emphasis. It's singular, a Bud Light, not a six-pack. Uh, you know, but it's just you know, go over there and you know, that might be one thing, but at the same time, that does not mean that it's okay for you to, to go to the bar every Friday and Saturday with them as well. What he's saying is, hey, listen, Don't forget that as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, you're the one who's supposed to influence them. It's not the other way around. In fact, later on, the Apostle Paul gives this warning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. Or as the Puritan William Foster said centuries ago, he that lies down with dogs gets up with fleas. (laughs) So we've got to make sure that we're influencing them. That, that, that there's something in us that they want for themselves. Listen, they should be more interested in going to church with you than you are in going to happy hour with them. We influence them is what Paul's saying. Now, on that note, verses 32 and 33, Paul reminds us that there's two reasons to run away. Two reasons to run away. Verse 32, he says, Give no offense to to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And I believe this next line that that the English translators put in in chapter 11, I think it's supposed to be the ending of chapter 10. It says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So now, Paul says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church. Now, this word offense that Paul uses here, apokroskropos in the Greek, this is a a term that that means to give an occasion to stumble. To give an occasion to stumble. But what's interesting about this word is is that it's an athletic term. In fact, it was often used in in the context of a marathon race. Now, why is that important? Well, because remember, the, the Corinthians, where they lived, they hosted a very large athletic event called the Isminian Games. The Isminian Games were second only to the Olympic Games held in Greece. And so the people who lived in Corinth would have been very familiar with, with, this, with this athletic picture, this, this, this term that was often used in a marathon race. Now, the idea is that in a marathon, there's a couple of different ways for a marathon runner to cheat. Now, one of those ways we, we talked about before to, to cheat in a marathon race would have been as you're running to, to throw like a boulder or, or, or a tree stump or something in, in the path so that the other runners would trip over it. They would stumble over it. It was called a stumbling block, That's what Paul had in mind back in chapter 8, verse 13, when Paul said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat uh, lest I make my brother stumble. The word stumble there is better translated stumbling block. It's that term used in the the marathon race, to trip up another runner. But another way uh, for a runner to to cheat in these marathon races would have been also to, to push their fellow runner off the track. You have to keep in mind that, that these marathons in, in, in the ancient Greek world, uh, they, they were a lot more like a, like, like, a, like a cross-country event than they were like a, like a, you know, a Boston marathon. And so basically, you, know, you, you would be running through you know, wooded areas and forested areas, and, and maybe you're on these, these mountain roads that are kind of winding, and, 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 the, and, and maybe you're at a point where there's no witnesses, it's just you and one other runner, and with nobody to see what happens, you push the other runner, not only off the track, but down the mountain, that's the picture that the Apostle Paul is using here when he says, give no offense, no occasion to stumble to Jews or to Greeks or to the church. Another way to render that is, is to, to, to non-believers or to believers. So in effect, what Paul's saying is, listen, he's saying, you know what? Whenever I as a Christian, you know, whenever I care more about my freedom to do this thing or to do that thing, you know, my freedom to, to have an occasional drink every now and then or, or my freedom to, to you know, uh, maybe, maybe use a cuss word here and there or, or my freedom to, to watch this kind of movie or that kind of movie or, or, or my freedom to tell a dirty joke. But whenever I care more about my freedom than I do about a, a, an unbeliever, whenever I care about my freedom more than I care about their soul and their eternity, then I am basically living my life no different than like a marathon runner who's cheating and pushing some guy off a mountain. And so ultimately, Paul's telling the Corinthians... These Corinthians who, who got saved from this background of paganism, these Corinthians who got saved from this background uh, of not only going to the temple and eating the meat that's been sacrificed, but also the drinking of alcohol and the smoking of marijuana and the, and the temple prostitutes, this, this whole thing. He's telling them, like, like we saw in verse 14, flee from idolatry, flee from that lifestyle. Now, as we said, there's two reasons to flee. Number one, for your own sake, and number two, for their sake. Number one, for your own sake. Now listen, is it just me, or have, have you noticed that, that we have this tendency to put ourselves in harm's way? You know, I mean, you know, over the years, I mean, I've, I've been in ministry now almost 30 years. And over the years, I can't, I've lost count of, of all the different people who'll come up, and, and they'll say things like, you know, Pastor, I just, I just feel so bad. I feel so horrible about myself. Why, what's going on? Well, last night, I, I got drunk. Oh, well, what happened? I mean, where were you when this happened? Well, I was hanging out at the bar. What, are you stupid or something? Listen, if if you don't want to get drunk, don't hang out at the bar. If you don't want to get hit by traffic, stop playing in the freeway. (laughs) The evangelist Billy Sunday used to say that that the reason sin flourishes is because we treat it like a cream puff rather than a rattlesnake. You know, and so many of us, you know, we, we, the, the problem, I think, is, is, is that we tend, to, we, we tend to toy with sin rather than flee from sin. I think that reminds us of, of, of Samson. A lot of us know the story of Samson. You know, he was a he-man, but he had a she-weakness. You know, he, 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 he always found himself, you know, getting involved with, with pagan women and getting involved with prostitutes. And, and so one compromise led to another compromise and led to another compromise, which ultimately led him to Delilah's barbershop. We all know the story. You know, Delilah turns to him and says, oh, Samson Pooh, that's my Delilah impersonation. You know, tell me the secret of your great strength that I might afflict you. Is it just me or does that sound like a dysfunctional relationship? And so over and over and over again, he keeps toying with her and toying with her and toying with her, and, 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 you know, and, and, and eventually he, he, he ends up getting toyed with by her. He fell for her, hooker, line, and sinker. And he ends up telling her the source of his great strength, and, and that led to his downfall. But listen, the story of Samson reminds us that, that if we toy with sin, eventually sin will toy with us. So don't toy with it, flee from it. So this passage is reminding us this morning that as a Christian, you are living the life of a fugitive. You're living the life of a runaway. You are always on the run from the very thing that wants to enslave you. But listen to this. Now that you're free, there are others around you who need the freedom you have. And that leads us to number two. You not only flee for your sake, you flee for their sake. And I think that's what Paul's alluding to in verse 33, when he says at the end of verse 33, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You're doing it for their sake. You know, it's interesting. Back in 2007, we led a trip to Israel. And at that time, we did this as kind of a joint venture with Calvary Chapel Greeley, but back in 2007, we're in Israel, and, and, and I was talking with our, our bus driver there. Now, we had a tour guide, uh, and we had a bus driver. Now, our tour guide, he was a, 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 a Jewish person who was a born-again Christian, but our bus driver was not a Christian. But during uh, breakfast, I'm sitting at the table there talking to the bus driver, having this great conversation, and he says, you know what? I love giving tours. love doing the tours with you Calvary Chapel guys. I said, well, why is that? He says, well, because you guys are the real thing. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, listen, I've been doing this for a long time and, and, and over the years I've, I've led tours for, for, for Baptist pastors and for pastors of this denomination and, and that denomination. He says, you know what? I've led tours for this famous pastor and he gives me the name. I've led tours for this famous pastor and he gives me the name. I've led tours for this famous pastor and he gives me her name. And, and he goes on and on and on. He goes, but you know what? It's always the same thing. Every morning we go up and we have to wake them up. And I said, why? He says, why? Because they're hung over from partying the night before. Or we go into their room and they're with a prostitute. He says, but you guys are like the real thing. I mean, I watch you guys and and it's like, I actually want what you have. And, And by watching you guys over and over again, you know what? I'm starting to think that this Jesus may actually be my Messiah. You see, that's why we do it. We do it for their sake. And so the Apostle Paul was reminding the Corinthians, as well as reminding us, that that as followers of Christ, we're we're living the life of a fugitive, we're living the life of a runaway, we're always on the run from the thing that wants to enslave us, but at the same time, we're trying to set free as many as we can who are still in slavery while we can. Reminds me of the story of Harriet Tubman. Many of you know the story of Harriet Tubman. And listen, I was public schooled and I know the story of Harriet Tubman. In fact, a handful of years ago, they made a movie. But Harriet Tubman, as you know, she, she was a woman born into slavery in the Deep South, but she was also a woman, a remarkable woman, who had, who had, who had deep faith in God. In fact, she often would have these, these prophetic dreams where God would actually speak to her through dreams and visions and, and tell her the future, tell her things before they would happen. Now, as you know, she, she ended up escaping from her own slavery in 1849 when she traveled by foot 90 miles to Philadelphia. Now, uh, between the years of 1850 to 1860, she made 19 different trips from the, so- uh, from the South to the North over and over again, uh, following this network called the, the Underground Railroad, where she ended up leading some uh, more than 300 people, including her, her, her own parents and many of her siblings, to freedom from their slavery. In fact, they ended up nicknaming her Moses. Because just as Moses led, 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 led his people free from their slavery to Egypt, she was leading her people to freedom. In fact, later on, she, she actually fought in the Civil War. She was actually uh, the first woman to lead an armed expedition into war, and she guided a troop of 150 black soldiers I- I- I, uh, to, to the, to the Combee River raid, which, which liberated more than 700 slaves to their freedom. Uh, and, and, and on one occasion, Harriet Tubman, she said this. She said, "'If you hear the dogs, keep going. "'If you see the torches in the woods, keep going. "'If they're shouting after you, keep going.'" Don't ever stop. Keep going. If you want a taste of freedom, keep going. And listen, that's your life as a Christian. You're on the run. Keep going. Don't turn back. You're a runaway. You're you're running from the thing that wants to enslave you, but you're also running to set free as many slaves as you can. Even as the Apostle Paul said in, in Colossians 1.28, he said, So everywhere we go, we talk about Christ to all who will listen, warning them and teaching them as well as we know how. We want to be able to present each one to God, perfect and immature, because of what Christ has done for each of them. Listen, this is your life. It's, it's, it's a life on the run. It's it's a life where you're you're constantly fleeing, but it's a life of freedom. And it's a life that you've been called to, to bring as many with you as you possibly can, while you possibly can. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.